Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I'm here with my friend Mark uh, Sayers. Mark is a senior leader of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. He's passionate about spiritual renewal and the future of the church. He's written a ton of books, including uh, Strange, J- Strange Days, The Disappearing Church, and Reappearing Church. And he's working on another book at the moment that should be out next year. In this episode, we talk about vaccines and stuff. Okay. I didn't even plan on going here. I didn't plan. I didn't have them on to talk about the vaccine, but I just, we started talking about the pandemic and the different responses between like Australia and America. And, and this dude has, is so well read. He's so thoughtful. He's so level-headed in so many ways. And so once he started talking about the pandemic and vaccines and stuff, I just kept asking more and more questions. Cause I was like, this guy is, um, just, yeah, he's super smart. And, um, some of you might not like this episode. <laughs> well, let me be specific. If you're anti-vaccine or express significant vaccine hesitancy, you probably will not like or agree with what Mark says, which is all the more reason why you should listen to it. Um, you don't need to agree. You need to absorb, listen, process, push back, do your own fact checking and so on. I enjoyed the conversation. And then we end up getting into uh, how, what's the church supposed to look like? What's the role of the church on the other side of pandemic is there another is there an other side of the pandemic or are we entering into the new norm and again mark has lots of interesting well thought out um, thoughts on that question so welcome back to the show for the second time the one and only Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology Raw. I'm here with Mark Sayers, back by popular demand. I've had a lot of people uh, reach out to me and say, hey, can you get Mark back on? Especially since Mark, the last time we talked, was pre-pandemic. And so a lot has happened the last couple of years. So thanks so much for being willing to come back on the podcast. Oh, my absolute pleasure. And uh, I, I'll just, I, I'm going to, I'm just going to go ahead and say it um, just for my audience because they're not going to have a clue. But um, we've been talking for about 20 minutes. <laughs> and I guess I didn't hit record, so I, I had to stop Mark mid-thought. And he's so yeah, we've already had this discussion, but we're gonna have to have it over again for the audience because it it's yeah, it was just everything you're saying was so enlightening. So let's start. <laughs> Go back to um tell us about the pandemic in Australia and kind of the different governmental response to that. Um I know you know, we see stuff on the news and our news outlets are so just tailored to what people want to see and they're, they be, have become such an echo chamber. So, you know, people have a, probably an idea of what is going on in Australia that's probably mm-hmm. more tailored to what the news outlet wants you to see versus what's actually going mm-hmm. on. So can you give us a snapshot to how Australia yeah. or in, in particular Melbourne where you live has handled the pandemic? Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, you have this issue that sometimes there's this fantasy view of Australia where you had the crocodile Dundee, crocodile hunter, you know, wilderness, you know, Australia of people who sort of live out in the bush somewhere and, you know, wrestle snakes or something. Um, so I think that's now changed to now Australia as the great totalitarian, you know, communist uh, pandemic <laughs> land in, in some in some viewers' minds. Um but yeah, like so, Australia took, uh, in some ways, you could say more of an Asian approach. Um, uh, obviously, there's a lot of diversity in Asia responses, but even how China and some of those countries have responded, Vietnam to to the pandemic, 
And so we cut off from the rest of the world and we pursued, for the, particularly probably the first half of the pandemic, COVID zero. So if there are cases, lock everything down until it gets to zero, open up, go about things as normal, but with the borders shut. Um, so it's really hard to get in and out of Australia. You've got a quarantine. Um, and then when there was an outbreak, you'd have you know, quite sort of um, strict measures in terms of curfews and stuff like this to get the numbers right down. Um, and uh, that worked well for a lot of lot of the time. But then when Delta came just in the last few months, um, uh, that's been a bit more difficult, but we're at a rapid vaccination um, sort of rate at the moment. I think we're the fastest vaccinating uh, jurisdiction in the world currently, and we're mm-hmm. going to sort of hit the 90s and stuff like that. So Melbourne's been in the world's longest lockdown, um, but other parts of Australia have actually been open for a lot of it. Um, and uh, the big difference, I think, with Australia the me- and New Zealand is the measurement we were looking at is deaths. So uh, one way to put it, I would explain it to people overseas, is Australia and New Zealand are very pro-life when it comes to uh, the pandemic, where other countries, the US, have been more pro-choice. <laughs> now you're you're deliberately using those categories. That's so funny. Um, <laughs> I had somebody tell me recently uh, who was um, this person was um, on the uh, very pro vaccine side and is, was very frustrated at mainly people on the right that were not for the vaccine, and so he started calling it the Trump vaccine. He's like, "Wow, you don't want to get the Trump vaccine." <laughs> He's like trying to mess with their categories. Yes. <laughs> He's like, yes. anyway, I, I don't, I, I'm so nervous. I, you know, you start touching the political bear and the p- pandemic and it's, you might as well be touching an actual bear. But um, so, so, I mean, would you say, and this is, you know, might, might make some people mm. upset. Would you say that um, pushing the vaccine really hard, like high vaccination, vaccination rates combined with strict lockdown, has been effective in leveling, not just leveling yeah. the curve, but actually getting down to close to zero. I mean, that's that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. That's a huge debate, right? So there was, in, in America, at least. Yeah. So for a lot of the, like the first part before we fully got vaccines out, you know, Australia didn't have um, cases for a long time. So Australia and New Zealand, if you look at New Zealand's thing, they had about a six-week lockdown at the beginning, which was really intense. Yeah. And then they lived pandemic-free, you know, those whole football games and concerts and everything um, until Delta came back recently. And even still, there's large parts of Australia and New Zealand living without the virus currently. So Perth, yeah. our most westernmost city, um, has lived without the virus. They just have sort of football championship over there and it just yeah. is totally normal. So you've had large parts of the country which have been able to operate with an unimpeded economy. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, so that was effective. And then and then what we're seeing around the world, you know, you look at something like Portugal at the moment, which has got really high vaccination. Denmark, um, that's the key out, high vaccination. Um, but that's going to be the key out for the world. So basically right. the, the threat that we have coming down the road is that um, the less vaccinated populations you have, the higher chance you have variants developing. Um, so we have a sort of thing where either you have, um, it could sort of burn out, um, but then there's a really, you know, significant chance that we're going to have a vaccine escaping variant um, come. Um, uh, which is highly transmissible, like like Delta, which will be a disaster for the world. Okay. Oh wow. Okay. So let me. And I know you know you, you're not a scientist or claim to be a scientist, but I, everything you say is always so incredibly well thought out, very balanced, and everything. So I would love to get your thought on this because there's 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 kind of two arguments. One would be like at least in America, one would be, and I think I mean I I hate adding to the politicalization, but I think this might come from the right more. Um, and they would say, look, vac- anybody can get vaccinated. It's all there. Um, if you choose not to, that's your choice. 
if you're vaccinated, you're more or less protected. I mean, things can happen. There's breakthrough cases, whatever, but hospitalization and death are way, 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 way dropped. So let's just live life. Like you don't want to get vaccinated. It's on you. Um, it's, yeah. it's available. So it's like, who can, let's just like, let's move on. It's, mm. it's, it's done in the sense of what are you going to do? The other argument on the other side of saying, no, we all need to get vaccinated is I think just what you said, right? Like until we all get vaccinated or all have T cell immunity, I think these variants, well, actually, no, I don't, I don't even know the the variants will keep mm. reproducing and spreading. But if we were all vaccinated, that wouldn't happen. Mm. Is that an accurate summary of, I guess, yes. The, yes. at least the second yeah. side, especially. So, yes. And, and just again to, you know, maybe I can get away with more here because I'm a foreigner. And, <laughs> no, so speaking from my kind, I'm actually speaking in Australia. Um, yeah. So if you talk to epidemiologists around the world, the argument you just said, on one side, there'd be people who make it in a political sense. The second argument you made around everyone getting vaccinated is what every epidemiologist would would argue. Okay. Um, so, so effectively, a really interesting way to frame this is that a lot of our political understanding comes from a Western political tradition, which felt that it had conquered nature. So once conquering nature, it then worked on the problems of human nature. So some of the ways of that, that was political science in the West. And, you know, so you look at this idea of a Hobbesian, you know, universe where everything was like dangerous in, in, in nature. And we felt that we'd conquered nature. So modernity was based on this foundation where we've conquered nature. So then we work on things like human freedom, equality. These are the problems of human nature. Mm. What's happening with the pandemic? And I believe what's also going to be, this is where the pandemic is a, is a portal into the next world, uh, is that the environment too, is that we have now the return of nature. And nature does not care less about your human freedom. So we're moving back into, uh, and back into what humans have struggled with throughout history, which is the return of nature. So for example, um, uh, uh, yeah, when, when you've got, um, so, so just to look at say coronaviruses, um, we know that coronaviruses sort of originated um, in bats and somewhere in Hubei, Hubei province there were bats. There's a whole bunch of arguments whether that was you know, gain of function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, but the original thing came from bats. So that's called a, a virus reservoir. So a virus reservoir is where the, the virus can circulate and then can jump across. So most of the, a lot of the pandemics we have in the world come from an animal reservoir and then will jump across into humans. So Ebola and stuff like this was, you know, people in Africa eating bushmeat and stuff like that and jumps across to humans. So you have human reservoirs. So basically what happens is uh, you have the virus is continually trying to infect everyone and it's evolving and adapting the whole time. Now, sometimes it will burn out. Um, but for example, what happened with Delta is in India, it was like continually trying. And then it, 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 a new better variant came, which was more transmissible and began to affect more people. And we saw that instantly the effects in the world as Delta uh, happened. Uh, and so there's different things in a, in a virus. There's things it's transmissibly, transmissibility there's severity and then there's vaccine escape. Delta is maybe a little bit severe. We're not more sure. It could be the same, but it was more transmissible. Right. The nightmare scenario is we get a more transmissible, a more deadly, and a vaccine escape. Um, um, and and there, is a, there is a significant chance of that happening. So right. when you've got a large group of unvaccinated people, so things like smallpox and so on, we vaccinated that sort of almost out of existence, right. uh, polio and stuff like this, because the world was slowly vaccinated and that disappears. So part of the argument of you do your thing, I'll do mine, 
That's an argument that's not coming from epidemiology. That's coming from people looking at a political framework of we'll deal with this as a problem of human nature. That's your belief, that's mine. But what, what we're entering into now is this world where reality is returning in the form of nature, where there's consequential decisions uh-huh. that we just can't agree to disagree on. Hello, friends. I want to invite you to come join us for our first ever Theology in the Raw Exiles in Babylon conference, March 31st to April 2nd. At this conference, we are going to be challenged to think like exiles about race, sexuality, gender, critical race theory, hell, transgender identities, climate change, creation care, American politics, and what it means to love, love, love your democratic and Republican neighbor as yourself. Different views will be presented. Everyone will be challenged to think critically, compassionately, and Christianly through all kinds of different topics. We've got loads of awesome speakers that are going to be there. Thabiti Anuboile, Chris Date, Derwin Gray, uh, Ellie Bonilla, uh, Jackie Hill Perry, Evan Wickham, uh, John Tyson, Tony Scarcello, Sandy Richter, Kimi Katiti, Heather Scriba, Street Hymns, and many others will be joining us for the first ever Theology in the Raw conference. All the information is in the show notes, or you can just go to pressandsprinkle.com to register. And I would recommend registering sooner than later. Space is limited. You can come and join us in person in Boise, or you can stream it online. Again, com for all the info. Decisions uh-huh. that we just can't agree to disagree on. So you're saying as long as there's a significant number of people who aren't vaccinated, you're just opening up many more doors for more variants to be created, possibly a very deadly variant, not just a more contagious one. Like, yeah, the Delta is more contagious, yes. hasn't yet seen to be more deadly, I don't think. But you're saying we can have another variant that could be way worse. And, yes. And and if the so let's yes. just snap our fingers and say the whole world's vaccinated tomorrow, then does that mean it would COVID would pretty much fizzle out, fizzle out within a I mean, really shortly? Yeah. So it's got nowhere to go. There is always the slight danger that it could go into an animal reservoir. And just to, this is, I mean, this is a bizarre thing. They they did testing on deer in Michigan recently, and like deers are, are raging with coronavirus. So it is jumping into animal reservoirs, but. You know, it, it would pretty much sort of disappear in the world if everyone's vaccinated. What about what about when they but get when natural not, immunity? Like they get it, they live through it, yes. they have T cell immunity. Is that the same as being vaccinated in terms of what we're talking about yes. here of, of contracting it and spreading it? There is elements. The problem we have with with um, natural immunity is that it wavers. So there are people who are getting COVID more than once, and it's different on different individuals. So there could be a thing where if we didn't have anything and it went around for years, so we could go, let's let's just go, let it rip and get herd immunity. Right. But you're going to see millions and millions of people die. Like So already, it's interesting, The Economist um, magazine just did a big study on looking at excess deaths in the world. So currently, the last I looked, and I looked a few weeks ago, but you're looking around, the official WHO is that there's around 4.5 uh, 4. Um, million people die in the world. Um, but when you look at excess deaths and you look particularly in the developing world, that's up around 15 to 20 million. Now, you look at that with, um, uh, uh, you know, you look at the US, which is, I think, around over 700,000 deaths now. You take away any contagion, you take away any uh, measurements to stop and you take away how many people have been protected by vaccines. Um, you know, so if no, nowhere in the world locked down, there were no vaccines, we would be looking at millions and millions of deaths already. Now, imagine if that went up in severity. Yeah. <laughs> um, so SARS, which was, you know, broke out um, before, that was less transmissible but higher death rate. Right, right. So COVID was not as high death rate as, as SARS but high transmissibility. But if those two line up and particularly with vaccine escape, 
uh, and also vaccine escape would also get past natural immunity where, where in, we would be in real trouble. And that, that's a possibility. People don't realize our COVID's going. Uh, you know, I just read a thing recently by one of the sort of a few leading epidemiologists. They're saying in the next year, we're going to generate a new variant, highly likely. Um, so, yeah, this thing may be over. It may not be. This could be. The, so Larry Brilliant, who's one of the world's leading epidemiologists, he said this is the start. We're still in the start phase of the pandemic. Oh, my word. Not good news, Mark. <laughs> well, um, so, I mean, it sounds then, if, then if, there if, is the possibility. That, if what you're saying is correct, I mean, Australia, sorry. especially being an island and being strict about keeping other people out as long as there's – you guys are looking like you're in pretty good shape, right? I mean, close to an 80% vaccine yeah, rate. So, and, yeah, so, you know, I, mean, I think um, – yeah, so like Portugal is, I think, probably the, the leading thing to look at at the moment. And, and they're, they're running out of people to vaccinate. Um, huh. And, you know, life's returned to normal, you know, effectively. They've got some contagion, contagion me- measurements. Um, so, you know, really where countries going to have to get to. Um, and I think you'll see almost most of the developing world, I think, will effectively get to around 90. But when you've got a, a population who hasn't, you've just got this continual uh, sort of punishment that's happening. So, again, I, 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 you probably already said this. I just want to get clarity in, in my own mind. So you're saying natural like herd immunity um isn't going to do the same thing because you're still giving time for the the virus to mutate and spread and different variants to develop whereas is that is that so yeah because i've heard people say well like yeah you have like 50 60 percent have been vaccinated the other whatever have already had it and after six months to a year from now you know two years it's 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 going to be gone. You're saying with natural immunity or whatever, that's not, that's not the case. Yeah. So it's because the game changer is, um, variants. So, right. so for example, there was talk of that you need 50, 60% herd immunity yeah. in population of vaccinations or natural immunity. When Delta came along, people okay. put that up to 80. There's even people saying that needs to be higher now. So if we get another variant that could go even higher again. Wow. How do you do? You must do a ton of reading on this because I I, mean, I've, I have friends who are um, yes. like experts in this area. Like this is what they do. They're scientists and everything. And you sound just like, them, but you're not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I just I just realized like early on, you know, I had to. And what what I saw there was an invitation for us um, to move. You know, we've been in a complicated world. Yeah. A complicated world gives us problems in a linear a linear idea. We're now moving into a complex world which is a network decentralized world, which operates according to the rules of complexity, which is very different. It's non-linear. Um, and I realized that the, the pandemic was an invitation to learn the ways of complexity. So that's one thing oh, I've really sort of tried okay. to work on in the last sort of year. You know, year. Yeah. So there's very similar patterns. Do you think, so what, I mean, I wanna, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk about vaccine. I didn't plan on this, but I no, mean. No, 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 is... happy, more than happy to talk um, about. Well, I, so um, what are the arguments against or arguments for vaccine hesitancy that you see and what like, um, and my, another question is what about people who are young and healthy? Like I have four kids or other people that have like teenagers or whatever. And there's, you know, this is a new technology and there's no long-term testing. Obviously it can't be long-term testing because it's new technology, but, um, what, cause I, I know some other people on the other side, they're super smart, well-read and, and they, they have, Vaccine hesitant. I've been vaccinated, by the way, because my audience is trying to pin me somewhere. And I've been vaccinated. My wife, you know. So, um, but I'm just, I'm always interested in like, what's the other side say? Like, are they all a bunch of idiots or are there some, is there anything to the other side, you know, that are there people who are nervous about the vaccine? Mm. 
Well, I mean, you've got you've got you know sort of a lot of the technology that's used in the vaccine was already being used in cancer treatments. So it's not necessarily that it's um, okay. uh, it hasn't been used for a long time. The second thing is another way to think of it is like an Amish barn raising. So for example, if you and I were going to build a house, it might take us a year or something, you know, whereas if like a thousand builders joined us, um, it may take, you know, I mean, China built a hospital in like a week or something at the beginning of the pandemic because they just had so many people. Um, and there's a video online of, uh, in China where they build a train station in 24 hours. So what people need to realize is that the world, the world saw this. Um, and, and it's interesting. So just to, to frame it another way, people often say it's, it's politicized. I, I've asked people, what, what issue has the world more agreed on than a response to coronavirus in history? Everything from Islamic republics to North Korea was shooting people who were trying to get in, you know, killing them because they were so afraid of coronavirus. So you've had everything from socialist regimes to highly capitalist regimes to Islamic regimes to, huh. to you know, all, every political model. If you listen to all the scientists saying, they're almost all saying the exact same thing. You haven't got, you know, you've got some countries which have pushed back politically, but the scientific um, consensus is pretty much agreed on, on, on these things. So you had literally the world's best scientists using the internet to work on these things at a high, at, at, a, at a rapid rate. So in many ways, it was an Amish barn race. Oh, so, wait. Can, can, can I can I add? And, yeah, can uh, yeah. Go ahead. Go on, no, you go ahead. <laughs> um, I actually think one of the reasons that this is, and again, too, it's really interesting if you look at the world at the moment. Not very, virtually no one in the developing world is like, oh, I don't know. They're just like, give us the vaccines, please, Western world people. Um, and and I've thought about that a lot. There's a, a writer on on he writes on he's an academic who writes on conspiracy theories, Timothy Malley, and he talked about a thing called an agency panic. He says that conspiracy theories are actually birthed by a sense that modern people in the West have been told that they have heaps of autonomy, freedom, they're individual, they have the ability to self-create. But the reality is in a complex world, you don't have as much autonomy as you think. And I think a lot of what around vaccine hesitancy is, is we're being told, you work it out for yourself, you do, you do the, the science, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we don't have as much autonomy as we think. Yeah. And so a pandemic is short-circuiting. You know, I, I don't know how to apply a, um, A380. A I've, I've, I've gotten in A380 planes and flown to London and America. I have no idea how to fly them. And even if I did a five-year course, I probably still wouldn't know how, to, how they worked. Um, and that's what the vaccine's like. There's an element, it's like, you do not understand this. You have to trust the experts, yeah. and that goes against our egalitarian human autonomy myth of the West. Huh. That's it's, why I think yeah. that's more at the heart of this. It's not a scientific argument. These are actually political arguments, and they're undermining particularly, I think, some of the political ideology that we have. What about the argument that, like, I've heard some people say, yeah, if you're, you know, older, you have comorbidities, you're severely, you know, obese or whatever other underlying health conditions. Obviously this population has been highly more targeted, but if you're young, healthy, 18 years old, you're super healthy, obviously there's a risk of anything, but there's also, there are some, you know, unknowns with the, with the vaccine. What's the trade-off? So I've heard people say like, well, I'm going to take my chances with this because I'm not really in a at risk kind of situation. Is there any truth to that, or are there some? Could they? I mean, I guess it's my, still did, it's still seeing it. Well, I, I would. My, also, I would yeah. yeah. Well, I would just say it's. I think the counter argument might be. Well, I just let you say it, or else, like the counter argument would be say. Well, as long as you're not vaccinated, you're still 
part of the global problem of keeping this thing going and variant spreading. And number two, we don't know if the next variant is going to target young people kind of like like another virus might. Is that? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So interesting, the Spanish flu, um, which came in you know, 1918, 1919, uh, affected younger people. More. Right. So there's a potential for a rise to come affect younger people more. Uh, secondly, so two things. So number one, increasingly we're seeing the long-term effects of COVID. Um, so there's things like long COVID, but increasingly we're seeing the neurological effects of someone having COVID um, plus the effects on the organs of the body. So uh, sort of health scientists are predicting that down the road, you know, there's going to be significant, there's significant damage to heart, all these vitals. So you might be sort of think you're fine, oh, but there's wow. stuff that's going to get you in tennis and that's going to put a burden on it. And so we don't know all that stuff. We, that's a more frightening unknown than you know, the effects of the, the vaccine necessarily. Huh. The second thing is people are still thinking about this through an individualist lens. Yeah. Like, again, in complexity, um, yeah, you, you may be fine, you may be young and fit, but you may give it to your grandmother. Right. Um, who, who um, and what we know is that the vaccines are probably going to have to have boosters in six months because they do weigh in with efficacy. Um, that um, you, um, just as you know, there's a new flu jab every year um, or flu shot. Uh, so, yeah, you may be fine, but your actions will affect others. And this is where it gets the, it undermines the individualist thing. So, so you're not just taking it for yourself. So it's not just an individual choice. It's actually a communal choice. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, we don't do choices like that in America. We don't do communal choices. <laughs> um, I mean, hey, guy, this is, I got, I got friends on both sides, you know, and, and some are not thinking they're just kind of going off anecdotal. You know, I heard of an aunt somewhere that got the virus and died and, and maybe she did, you know, but, um, uh, hey, what about that? I've heard someone say that people are dying from the vaccine. Is that, I've heard that from so, a few different people. I've never so seen studies a, or anything, but is that, has there been cases of that? I mean, they have some people who have passed away, but it's your one in millions. Um, just as people pass away from Tylenol, higher mm-hmm. numbers. Huh. Um, so, so the people who pass away from peanut butter. Um, and um, so there's a tiny, tiny percentage. Some of that's been overplayed. Um, but the amount, the death rate compared to the to the, okay. to the actual, right. um, you know, deaths, it's, it's, it's utterly incomparable. So there's, there's chances in a million, but you've got more chance. There was a great graphic someone did here of, you know, basically going to get your shot and, you know, you are thousands of times more likely to fall out of bed and die that morning on your way to the shot and get hit by lightning and get struck right. by a falling plane uh, than you were to die with the vax. Yeah. And what about somebody I heard somewhere like with younger girls, like teenage girls affecting future pregnancies or anything like that, making them infertile? Are these just all kind of myths swirling around or again, there might yeah. be some so of case? Or... Yeah. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of that is myths. Yeah. Okay. Hey, all right, let's let's move on, and I'll 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 forward you all the emails I'm going to get for this. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, all right, church. Let's talk about the church. You made a comment. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote it down. Let me see if I got it right. That this pandemic is a portal into the next world. Next world. Mm-hmm. Um, that life on the other side of this, if there is even another side, is going to be vastly different than before. And you kind of unpacked that a little bit. Can you kind of mm-hmm. dive deeper? And, and when you say portal in the next word, I'm thinking like on the eve of the invention of the internet, on the eve of the invention of the printing press, on the eve of 
the conversion of Constantine or some of these just kind of major mm. changes in society that left the church looking different, sometimes vastly different than before, mm. or not just the church, but society. Mm. Are you saying that we're on the e- another eve of something, which would be interesting because mm. the internet was just, you know, a couple that's a few decades ago. Are we really facing yet another mm. back-to-back kind of world change? How should Christians think mm. of that? Mm. Yeah, so I think we're coming to the end of, you know, what I would call the American century, or um, and there's two parts to that. So the first part of that was probably, you know, you look at 1945 to perhaps the 1970, and that was about America being at the top of the world as the world's leading industrial economy. And if you think about that time, there's lots of centralization as the great energy. Uh, power is centralized into the United States. Power is centralized into Hollywood, into Los Angeles. Power mm-hmm. is centralized into Detroit for the car industry. Um you know, there was this great power centralized, uh, uh, and that then shaped institutions. Um, so institutions centralized power to themselves, that hierarchy, they had a, often a very powerful leader at the top um, of that hierarchy. Um, but then things began to sort of come awry a little bit in the 1970s. And there was this rethinking of um, that. And um, there was this model of really, well, how do we sort of then have almost a, an American-led globalization? And so the world slowly moved to this idea where there was this, you know, and some of it was also done after World War II, you know, an international-based rules order, but with America leading it. So institutions like the United Nations, the IMF, the World Bank, all in a sense were, you know, heavily influenced by the U.S. and created by the U.S. Um, and the idea of creating a global market um, where goods and trade could be flowed. Um, now, obviously, part of the, the sort of thing that made that difficult was the Cold War. There was two competing models in the world. There was the competing sort of communist Soviet uh, Eastern Bloc model and there was the Western uh, world and those two clashed in a Cold War. Now, in 1989, the Berlin Wall falls and there's this incredible moment of elation and uh, not long afterwards, apartheid ended in South Africa and both felt like this sense we're heading to this new world, which is slowly just gliding towards a utopia. Mm. Also around that time, Jet, jet travel becomes cheaper. People can move around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes, you know, normal to take a holiday in another country that's not out of the reach of a lot of middle-class people. Um, you have the internet mm-hmm. um, begins with a great utopian fanfare with the belief that if we can just talk to people horizontally without politicians and institutions and elites yeah. being in the way, that the world will move to a, a wonderful place. And um, huh. uh, really, we had sort of 30 years there, I think, of euphoria and elation uh, you had people like Alan Greenspan, the chairman of the Fed, saying that we're in now a sort of new zone of continual just growth huh. um, of, of the economy. And, you know, the Washington consensus, sort of free market ideology uh, was, you know, the world was moving towards it. Francis Fukuyama, the political scientist, wrote an article, called, oh, an article at the end of history, which became a book, which was that history's come to an end. The great struggles are over. The world is all going to move wow. towards a liberal democracy. Russia will become a liberal democracy. China will eventually um and that was what has shaped our thinking. That shaped not just the geopolitical realm, it shaped the individual realm. And what that said is your life, the world's a playground, the world's gonna get smoother, you can just go and do your thing without impediment and live your best life and we're gonna live in this sort of apolitical Seinfeld world where nothing really matters but <laughs> you can self-create. And um, I think we've come to the end of that. And wow. um, it was already coming to an end, there was a series of shocks, September 11th's a shock, um, the global financial crisis was a shock. Um, the political upheaval we've seen where unexpected populism results, which went against what elites thought, everything from Brexit to 
um, uh, the election of Donald Trump. And, and I think the pandemic saw an acceleration of those mm-hmm. things in so many countries. So the portal language is actually from the Indian novelist, Arundhati Roy, who said that in the Financial Times at the beginning of the pandemic, that the pandemics are portals to a new kind of world. So mm-hmm. it's not just that this is a hiccup and we had a pandemic and our life's going to get back to normal. We've entered into a complex world and in complex systems like um, the, the, uh, uh, like the virus things yeah. bounce off each other. So one thing we're finding with corona is that people who live in cities with high smog levels are being hit worse because the problem of smog and how the effect on that on the lungs with a respiratory illness means that those two crises come together. Um, one of the things we're experiencing in the world at the moment is a supply chain crisis because yeah. when large parts of the world got locked down, people started, oh, instead of going on a holiday to Cancun, I'm going to spend that money building something in my backyard Timber, everyone needs timber. Um, everyone started buying stuff online. And you had then China, Southern China, which makes all the stuff, had a resurgent outbreak in its factories. Uh, and all these crises begin to bounce into each other. So yeah, what we're going to have is we're having, we had a coronavirus crisis, but that's intersecting with a potential economic crisis, which is connecting with supply chain crises, which is now connecting with a new geopolitical crisis and an environmental crisis. So we're moving into this stage of an interconnected world. So the more connected the world is, the more chaotic things tend to get. So mm-hmm. I'm saying that a period, we're coming to the end of a period, um, but we're not necessarily entering into a new period. Instead, we're entering into the liminal space that I call, I use the term gray zone, where two eras overlap. Mm. And that's a really confusing time. So it's not like we end and we're like, it's not like someone ended like, oh, the dark ages ended on Wednesday <laughs> and on, on Thursday, the period began. There's always overlap. And I think we're in a confusing overlap where you can see the new world coming, but it's not fully formed. And you can see elements of the old world, it's disappearing and it's really confusing. So all the markers you look to for meaning and sense and purpose are there confused upside down. And, and that's what the church is currently finding itself in that context. Hey friends, hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. And if you are enjoying this conversation and others like it, would you consider supporting the Theology in the Raw ministry by going to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to lots of different kinds of premium content like monthly Patreon only podcasts and blogs and Q&A sessions. Again, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw or all the info is in the show notes. She's currently finding herself in that context. Wow, golly. I've um I read a book of the early stages of the pandemic. It was by an epidemiologist. What do you, how do you say it? And epidemiologist. Epidemiologist. Um pretty high up guy. He's been he was an expert in like SARS, the first SARS, the and then Ebola and other. I mean this guy's super qualified. And that that book, I forgot the name of it. Um he wrote it probably three years ago, and he, he even has a chapter in there predicting another outbreak that will probably start in China. This is he wrote it in 2017. So fascinating. A lot of people are like, "Well, this is weird," but he's like, "It's just high density population, you know, um, intersection between like yeah the 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 markets and animals and people and everything." And he even created a, a fictitious scenario in that book. I'm blanking on his name. Um, uh, where he kind of said, imagine that something like this might happen. <laughs> and it wasn't, I mean, to the T what happened, but it, there was about 70% overlap. Mm. It was fascinating. But one of the things he said in that book, something that might be old news to scientists, whatever, that I never even realized, 
is that um, antibi- antibiotics, how, how that has revolutionized humanity, the development of antibiotics, but mm-hmm. apparently they're becoming less and less and less effective because they've been, I guess, overused, overprescribed, yeah. so, that are, so that these diseases are now fighting their way back in. And we don't really know, like our, our memory is so short that we don't remember life before antibiotics, but he was saying almost casually, like, like it's just an obvious fact that we're going to be entering into probably if something doesn't happen, a world that was similar to, you know, pre 19th or 20th century when, yeah, you, I mean, you can die from getting a cut and get infected like the rest of humanity for the rest of human history. Like, <laughs> You just, you know, uh, we've mm. been living in this kind of bubble for the last hundred years with antibiotics, but the new world might not have that. Um, is that, is that my, have you thought about that? Is that old news to like scientists yeah. or, uh, it kind of, but yeah, it, you, so it the, made me yeah, think what you're saying, this, this new port, this new world, this portal into this new world where we have yes. controlled nature and we protected ourselves from kind of these things that the rest of yes. human civilization, civilization wasn't protected from. We might be going back into that. Yes. So, so it's the return of nature. So yeah, yeah one is the antibiotic drop off is a big one. Um, also the more, so, you know, you sort of have people say, oh, you get this pandemic every hundred years. But mm. what's interesting is what people don't realize as well is that the more you push into nature and more human environments overlap with nature, the more you overlap with the natural world and expose yourself to new viruses. Now, the more the world's connected. So like where I live here in Melbourne, um, in this particular part of town, lots of Chinese uh, people, and when we first went into lockdown, um, they were like, anyone who's been in China in the last um, three weeks has to at least spend a week at home. So school kids. Now, it was the end of Chinese New Year. There were schools nearby here where 50% of students weren't in class because they'd all been in China in the last three weeks. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, wow, that, that many people are just going backwards and forwards to countries. So, you know, I, I in a sense, wasn't surprised by the pandemic because I've stood in Dubai Airport and just looked around and gone, man, like one virus gets out here, it's going to go everywhere in the world <laughs> yeah. in 24 hours. And, and that's what happened. So connecting ourselves to nature, the more the world is connected, the more fragile we are. Mm-hmm. And that's not just true mm-hmm. of bacteria and viruses. That's also true of ideas. You know, like you think about um, the fact that, you know, someone in a troll farm in Russia can influence someone in another country or, or even things like you saw, you know, uh, just, just even ideas can be, you know, uh, infectious in the world and, and bad ideas can be infectious in the yeah. world. Um, so we're, we're in a, we're in a much more like connected world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means that, th- um, uh, Anthony Giddens, the philosopher said, um, yeah, globalization brings, you know, what was far near, but also distances you from what is near. So you might be open to a virus that's in Hubei province in China and you might become radicalized by an ISIS video on the other side of the world, but you may not know the people three houses down in your right. street, yeah. whereas 20 years ago you would have. Huh. Ah, it's kind of getting depressing. I, let's uh, – um, what, what, how should <laughs> – given that, let's just assume that everything you're saying is correct or more or less correct. We're entering into a new portal that might reflect some of the – things we thought we had eradicated in the past how should the church what's that what how should the church think through this and what changes do christians in the church need to make as we venture forward well i think think there's two things primarily happening so the first one is that 
if you look at the idea of secularization and secularization thesis is the idea that as the world becomes more developed and more industrialized and more modernized, the less that people need for God. Um, mm. And, you know, there's even, you know, research done about this. Uh, there's a sociologist of sort of religion called uh, Roger Englehart. And he, he, he talks about the idea that, you know, countries where you are less worried about dying the less religious you are. So in a sense, the less you have to deal with stuff on lower down on Maslow's hierarchy, the more then politics becomes about really obscure elements of identity politics or this, or, you know, you're not, you know, if you just presume I'm not going to get sick, I'm not going to die. Every meal is going to be you know, provided for your idea is more like what, what store am I going to go to at the mall? Um, that, that secularizes culture. Hmm. Now what's happening is the Maslow's hierarchy is going down. And, um, uh, I have a friend, she did some research in, here in Australia and said that what's happening is gen- Generation Z is actually, they're, they're going down on the hierarchy where the questions they're asking now on this side of the pandemic are much more basic security stuff. I just want to be able to afford a house one day. Mm-hmm. I just want to live in a secure world. I think about my daughter at the beginning of the pandemic in that first sort of crazy six weeks, you know, we went to the supermarket and it was when everyone was panic buying and, um, <laughs> There was empty shelves. Yeah. Now, I never saw that growing up. I oh. presume the supermarket's always going to work. That's going to be in her mind. You know, in my, in my kid's mind now is that school may shut down and you've got no choice in it. The world's a lot more unpredictable. So I think that what's actually going to happen in the world, and I think it's already happening, is there's an evangelistic opportunity. Um, I, I sort of feel like a lot of the Western church is getting so frustrated and, and looking at it from a personal perspective. Then, like, the idea that, hang on, individualism is being short-circuited by the pandemic and hello people there are consequences and you're not your own mini god you can do what the heck you want and you're part of a bigger connected thing that's a brilliant evangelistic opportunity mm-hmm. <laughs> um and you know in the 90s i remember in the 90s there were books about the emergence of postmodernism and relativism was going to be so difficult for evangelism because people are a bit impenetrable because you explain the gospel and someone goes well that's your truth that's mine yeah um that's falling apart um, that huh. into that political sphere, it's, it's short circuit political sphere. But the moment, my concern, you know, and you know, w- with love, particularly in the US, is at the moment when Christians should say, "Yes, look, exactly, Here, here's the myths falling down." There is, they found themselves as equally wrapped up in the myths. So that that's number one. The yeah. second one. Oh, sorry, I'm happy to happy to pause there if, if you want. Well, to keep going. I mean, no, I, I mean, every sentence you say, I've got five different thoughts in my head. I don't. Um, I, it it made me. I mean, I, I imagine the church in Acts, and I know we always go back to Acts and everything, but I mean, yeah, you, you had a world that was extremely unpredictable. Um, you know, 80 to 90% of the people lived below the poverty line. 20% of the Roman Empire were slaves. You had just, I mean, it was a lot more chaotic. Um, people living hand to mouth, two meals a day. Um, and then you had, you know, 10, 20% that, or maybe... 10% that would be lower middle class by our standards. And then the upper elite, you know, another five, 10% that were wealthy and the church, it needed to be the community to survive. And so when you read like acts two, acts four, and you have economic re- redistribution, like we just don't, we just don't have the lenses, the categories to read that in, in the power, you know, like, and, and when you belong to the church, like there's that sense of like economic, social, medical, like 
benefits of having this tight knit community, especially when poor people are belonging and wealthy or Christians are being generous, opening up their homes and everything. And, or in that, that passage in Mark 10, 10, 29, where Jesus says, nobody is left behind fathers and mothers and brothers and mm-hmm. da, 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 and fields, which is in an agrarian context mm-hmm. is a statement of economic security who won't receive back mm-hmm. in this present life, mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and mm-hmm. fields, you know, along with, so, so you have this reward mm-hmm. of community, not just, Hey, I might make a few friends or talk mm-hmm. to some people on Sunday, but it's a whole polis, right? It's a whole community in, in, in the, mm-hmm. in the capital C sense of the term community. And I'm just, I just, as you're talking, it made me think of all that, like that, the, the power, the possibility mm-hmm. and necessity of the church to, embody that in a growing chaotic world we just can't be attending church services mm. as the our raison d'etre of being a christian anymore it seems like you know um mm. and, and mm. i always have to add the footnote yes. nothing wrong with attending church services but in a chaotic world yes we're gonna need more than that <laughs> i don't know but is that yes okay <laughs> oh totally and it, it's perfect segue into i guess my second point which is exactly what you're saying that what we're seeing is the death of the cultural so okay yeah we're seeing the death of the consumer cultural christian thing of coming to church we're seeing the revivification of cultural christianity which we can talk about <laughs> so just at the moment cultural christianity is dying it emerges in a new form or an older form it's like a virus right. stopping in that <laughs> it's, like point, a vi- it's like a variant <laughs> it's, it's like a zombie um so yeah so i think what's happening is that if you think again to what i talked about the american industrials Thing, uh, century, the model was build a, a centralized institution that everyone are drawn to magnetically with a charismatic leader. Um, and that's really been the model of our churches. Yeah. Um, but now in a decentralized world, the energy of the world is decentralizing. Um, that means you can't just live in this, you know, here's so-and-so church and it's our own little universe here and we're disconnected from the outside world. Like the idea of the church retreating from culture, there is no place in a decentralized, globalized world to retreat from culture. Mm. And so... I think that model of attenders versus apprentices of Jesus, as my friend Terry Walling would say, um, that attenders model is currently being massively subverted. Um, and that's going to be a huge change point that the contemporary church model is going to have to get their heads around. Wow. I, um, you're a pastor. You've been a pastor for a number of years. What, does, does your church – look different now than two years ago or what, uh, of course, you know, sometimes you got to turn a big ship, you know, it takes a while, but like, what, what are some things you're practically doing as a pastor in your church to start maybe preparing your people and discipling them through this? What I realized is that sometimes the environment is the best teaching tool <laughs> <laughs> and um, the pandemic has been an incredible teaching tool. Uh-huh. Um, it's been terrible and people have died and I don't want to downplay that. Right. Um, but so, for example, we, we had a long time not meeting. So we didn't meet from really March until January. We were able to come back for another bit. And then we had to shut down again in June, July. And we haven't met. So we're going back online. Um, and the church has been changed. You know, there were people who left, you know. And, and what I've been amazed is, you know, my little statement is there was a virus before the virus. And the virus before the virus was this thing that was slowly taking over the church where people were coming less and less People were making up their own theology and their own values. Uh, and we're all a bit like laissez-faire about it or in denial because there were still sort of backsides on seats in some places. Um, so the fact that we had people who left after six weeks, not even because of polarization or this or that, we're just like, oh, 
I'm not, I don't really believe this after six weeks. Like that happened at churches across the place. Um, that, that's a, that's what were we doing wrong mm-hmm. previously that those people kept coming for years. Um, so I see that that switch of move from an attendance model and I still want people to come and, you know, be part of it mm-hmm. again, you know, we're still do, we'll do Sunday services when we return, but moving to an apprentice of Jesus model. Um, so basically if someone comes to your church and it doesn't matter whether they're exploring faith for the first time or they're a seasoned believer, if they're comfortable not growing, I know I'm doing something wrong. And, um, mm. you know, I think that the model is that we need a devoted model of Christianity built around discipleship where people are pushing into Jesus. And I think this has been almost a sort of, um, you know, God's used is, is using this to show how much we were reliant on models that perhaps weren't delivering in the way that we thought. Mm. And I think for leaders as well, that there was like a, a power that leaders had. If we get everyone in the room, but what do you rely on once you can't do that? Mm-hmm. You know, Alan Hirsch, you know, my friend, he said, you know, it's like if you want to teach someone how to play chess, take the queen off the board. And he said, what happened with the pandemic is Sunday services were our queen and we had to take them off the board. Um, so I've had that in my mind the whole time. So I don't know what we look like when we, we regather in a few weeks. It's a profoundly changed church. Um, and I actually have been pushing into how do we be a remnant, yeah, not just a church that looks nice on a Sunday. So will your yeah, when you return, let's say you return full capacity or whatever, you could do, you know, at least in terms of gathering on Sundays, life is back to normal, quote unquote. Will, will that look differently for you? Or are you still kind of exploring ways in which you can help people to not be so addicted to the queen? I love that analogy, by the way. That's props to Alan there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one thing we noticed when we came back, there's less volunteerism. And at first we were like, oh man, that's, that's hard. And, you know, we had a lot of volunteers on a Sunday and, you know, had staff are leading teams of volunteers and, and we found that that didn't come back. You know, people were coming back slowly and that's happened everywhere. Um, so the staff more ran things in terms of like, you know, on the door, but then we realized, you know, we almost had this thought like, yeah, like it, we could have someone who's coming to our church. I'm part of our, ch- you know, red church, whatever. And, you know, I move chairs, you know, like, like, would you rather someone actually was, people have got less and less time because it's a busy world. Um, would you rather that people spend their contribution to the church moving a chair or actually learning how to be a better disciple or serving the community or whatever? And so I think that that we're, we're looking at how do we be more impactful with our discipleship? Okay. Um, you know, we created this thing when we were, first went um, online of huddles. So we put people into groups of three for mutual discipleship and accountability, and they're connected on Skype or Zoom or whatever. So I think we're going to move, you know, push deeper into discipleship is something that we do. And then what Sunday becomes is, is you know, I think a place of encountering the presence of God, of hearing the word, um, but it's not trying to do all things to all people. I think it's what, what Sundays was and less entertainment. Like I think Sundays is not, if we have to entertain people on a Sunday, um, they, in a sense, they're coming for the wrong reasons. Yeah. I've been thinking through, I don't know. I, I go back and forth on this and I, you know, I the, the role of specifically a monological Sunday sermon in a post internet, post podcast, post pandemic kind of world. Um, on the one hand, I was just reading a book about this. It wasn't about this. It was about something completely different, but it kind of brought up, it was talking about education and, and, and the value of lectures 
which is passive learning versus mm-hmm. other things that, that cultivate active learning, where the student is more involved in the learning mm-hmm. process. And mm-hmm. he said, statistically, students always prefer dynamic lectures, but in terms of learning outcomes, mm-hmm. it's always active learning where they're involved, where they're part of the process, mm-hmm. where they actually learn the most and they gain the most. And then, of course, you know, he's just talking about knowledge and stuff. And we're talking about something kind of mm-hmm. different, but still, like, just it made me think about the value and role of monological preaching. Mm-hmm. And, and even it kind of ties into why so many people are kind of not coming back to church anymore. Like they, <laughs> if the main draw is a good, maybe <laughs> oration, it, it will never be as good as what they can find somebody else. So that's kind of, if, if church, the church experience mm-hmm. is reduced to passive reception of a, good oration and I'm putting that maybe that's too snarky to, mm. well, you know um, mm. I just I don't know I just and, and yet I know like you read you read the speeches of Martin Luther King and whole movements have been you know mm. fostered and and thrive through monologues you know the great speeches of history mm. so I, I don't want to downplay that either like they have the power in fact there's sermons mm. I listened to 25 years ago that will have forever shaped you know mm. my Christianity. Mm. I still think about early sermons I heard in my conversion experience. Mm. I'm like, yeah, I could still almost quote some of the stuff I heard because they just had such an impact in my life. So on the other hand, I do like a, mm. I don't know, like I don't want to downplay the power of mm. a powerful monologue, but it just mm. made me think like, what is there, are we going to have to kind of rethink even the role of preaching in a church in light of everything we've been talking about? And I, I really don't have any anything beyond that, just a lot of questions. Have you thought through, mm. I mean, that in particular mm. or? Yeah. I mean, when, when we first, we were pretty experimental when we first sort of started. So I, like when we first sort of started, I, we just met in a cafe and I just would have a conversation with people. Like mm. I'd sort of talk and it'd be like backwards and forwards. So we fully went down that uh, road. One thing I did learn was that people, it was very attractive to Christians. Ironically, doing that in a, in a cafe was most attractive to Christians and non-Christians found it totally weird and <laughs> scary. <laughs> and... Um, and there was something even in, in Melbourne, which is you know, pretty post-Christian, probably more post-Christian than a lot of contexts in the US, is that still people have this cultural memory of, okay, I'm going to try this Christianity thing. I'm going to go and go to a church service. So I think there still is is utility there. And then and the other thing that happened is people say, like, oh, it's great we're having this conversation, but do you mind just – I literally have people say this to me. Could you perhaps talk for a bit longer, like for about 30 minutes so we can think about it more? Because other people's questions are just bringing it down to this sort of level, like – in a sense, it, like the person, you know, it sort of went down to the lowest common denominator was people's complaint, not not our complaint, but that's what people were saying. Um, so we ended up bringing that back. Um, but I think I think there's still something of worth in what you're saying, that, that church where it's just the star preacher who's giving the great sermons every week, and that's what's going to draw people. So I see it as part of an overarching fabric of the church, of many things that the church is doing that preaching plays part. And there'll be the Sunday you know, sermon or a sermon somewhere, but then there's also people wrestling with it and asking questions over here and asking questions of the preacher perhaps afterwards mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, yeah. I, and also, and this, this might be, I don't think it's cynical. I think it's pretty honest. Well, could be both, but <laughs> I mean, we live in the world today of, you know, fact checkers and Google and like in the past, preachers could get away with all kinds of stuff. Right. But now, especially with Gen Z and younger millennials, like, and I'll do this, dude, I'll, I'll fact check stuff when I'm, when they're speaking, I'm like, yeah, that's not right. Well, there's four other views on that one. Mm-hmm. And like, no, that's just flat out wrong. You got the date wrong there. And, and, 
And and I feel like as preachers, and I'll just is maybe my assumption, it seems like preachers are getting more and more busy with mm. many other things. They're getting less and less studied. They're not doing the, you know, mm. 30 hours of research to put into a sermon. It's like, who have time, who has time for that anymore? Mm-hmm. And I just feel like, you know, I'll speak to preachers now. Like, how do you even know that people are actually even believing what you're saying? And are you, you know, they could be, mm. is there any space for you to even know, like, what questions do you have? What pushback? Mm. Have I gotten anything wrong? What do you think about this? Are you going to live this out? Mm. Why not? Who's going to live it out? What are hindrances to live it out? Mm. Like there's so many mm. unknowns when you, when you just speak on what's happening in the audience. And yet there's so many opportunities to actually kind of find mm. that out. Um, mm. Yeah. I, I just gave a yeah. talk oh, the other day. I on, think that on, there's I, stuff that happens. Like, yeah. I was just, just I, yeah, I gave a talk the other day at a church on sexuality and stuff. And we, I always do Q and a, mm. like half my talk is usually Q and a. Mm-hmm. And it's text in Q and A, where I have a platform mm-hmm. where they can, you know, be anonymous and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I'm speaking. It seems like everybody's amen and yawning, mm-hmm. nodding, and everything, all this stuff. Then you get into all mm-hmm. these questions, like, "Oh, wait, you're here? Like, you really hate everything I'm saying?" <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like. <laughs> mm-hmm. But churches, I mean, I think a lot of pastors would oh, probably be scared uh, to ask a question. What are people? And yes. they may get the emails, so they may actually say, "No, I do know what mm-hmm. some people are thinking." You know, but I don't know. I, I just. I don't know. No, yeah. love, anything I'll you want to jump on there? <laughs> yeah. Like, I still think there's a place where the spirit does stuff. And like, I think it's different as well. Like, I think in some ways, well, like what I preach on a Sunday is different. And almost how we do it is probably Sundays for us to become more about spiritual growth in the sense of people who want to move together and how can we sort of grow together. Okay. You know, and I would say that it's become less informational, more transformational. Okay. Um, so, you know, what I chat about here, I'm not necessarily saying that on a Sunday, you know, bring that sort of stuff up. And that's probably where we've gone as well. Um, and you just notice these things that will happen in the room. It's so funny. Like what I find weird is you'll say something. So you've got multiple services. You say something in one service and it's sort of just nothing seems to happen. And then you say in the next service and it just impacts people. So I think there is this thing of the spirit at play as well. Yeah. In, in the midst of it, which I think I still am drawn to Yeah, the mystery of all that. Yeah, that's good. Well, we're coming up on an hour here, Mark. I, I want to respect your time. Thank you so much for uh, chiming in. Um, can you chime in? I don't know. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about something else and that word came out of my mouth. And I was like, that's a weird thing to say, chiming in. Um, your most recent book, um, is it The Reappearing Church or have you written one since then? Yes. Get, can, so I have written a book which is coming out next year, which oh. is called A Non-Anxious Presence. But my last book was The Reappearing, uh, Reappearing Church. Can you give us a snapshot of Reappearing Church and then the forthcoming one? I didn't realize you're working on another one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Reappearing Church is really the idea of how does God turn around moments? Um, how do revivals, awakenings you know, happen? And, and I sort of posit like, and it's actually fascinating because one of the ideas of the book is that crisis precedes renewal. Now, I wrote that in 2018, 2019. Yeah. Um, and, you know, how does God reinvigorate his church? Um, and so that's really what that book's about. How does that work through history? How does that happen? Um, the next book is really about some of the stuff we've been talking about today. How do we, um, particularly leaders, equip themselves for a complex world? Uh, and how do we uh, live in this gray zone moment, this liminal in-between space? Um, and how actually those sort of moments are sometimes the times where God actually forges a whole new cohort of leaders to, uh, you know, be his ambassadors of the kingdom in the world. Oh, man, that that that's I can't wait for that one. And yeah, I probably said this at the beginning. Um, 
but I haven't recorded the intro yet. From, <laughs> but yeah, uh, you've written uh, Reappearing <laughs> Church, Strange, uh, Strange Days, Disappearing Church, Facing Leviathan, uh, The Road Trip That Changed the World, The Vertical Self, and other books here. Um, so yeah, check out marksayers.com. Is it com or co? Oh, dot co. Marksayers.co for yeah. uh, information, speaking, blogs, and so on. Are you still doing that podcast with John Mark Comer? Is that, you guys moved on from that? So finished that one, but I'm now doing a podcast called Rebuilders. So you can just look up Rebuilders. Rebuilders. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for being on, man. I always learn like so much from talking to you. <laughs> like I got a fire hose of great info oh, process. So, all right. Take care. Oh, I love chatting. Thank you so much. Yeah.